want you to listen. Then what? Share it. The Melbourne Youth and Social Workers Group and the Knowledge on Tick podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Boonarong and Wurundjeri people, their elders past and present. We would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the land, her children and our families. We would like all of us to show respect for each other, Mother Nature and the creatures on the land and the sea. Hey everyone, the Melbourne Youth and Social Work Facebook group would like to welcome you to the Knowledge on Tick podcast. We are Josh and Nat and we will be your co-hosts for the potty. Knowledge on Tick is a podcast offering real-life conversations and insights every week with workers in the field covering a range of topics surrounding the youth and social work world. We are so grateful to have you here and happy listening. Okay, well, welcome back to another episode of Knowledge on Tick. Uh, today is just Nat and myself. Hey, guys. And we're going to just chat through a few different things. Um, due to the coronavirus, we've had um, a bit of difficulty getting podcast guests, not because they're not willing, uh, just difficulty getting around the whole travel restrictions, people gathering in one place. Um, and unfortunately, we don't cover um, coronavirus fines in our <laughs> participating in the podcast. Flouting the rules. That's right. We don't condone that type of behaviour. We do not. Um, so, yeah, you're stuck with just the two of us. Yeah. Um, but speaking of fines, get straight into some pieces of information. Yeah. I shared on the Facebook page, I think it was early this week, um, the WDP program. Mm. Um, so for anyone out there, if you're not aware of it, um, you can check it out. It's a Victorian government initiative that allows young people that have uh, got fines not criminal-related fines, um, but fines, for example, like uh, putting your feet on the seats on the train. Mm. Um, not having a Mikey, I think. Yeah, not having a Mikey. Yeah. Stuff like that. Um, it gives the young people the ability to pay off or work off their fines through work, working um, day-to-day, being engaged in mentor-related programs. I think mm. some counselling, which any creative case managers out there would probably be able to swing their, you know, work like drug and alcohol work, for example, you could mm. probably swing. With Mental the, health, you'd be able to swing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I've heard that potentially COVID-19 fines will be included, Yeah. Um, which is super helpful because um, I've heard through the grapevine that, like, police are pretty tough at the moment, finding young people um, at the moment. Yeah, so just mm. keep a lookout for that. It's also good if you do have any young people at the moment anyway who just have... Um, chalked up any fines yeah get onto it pretty uh, easy to do yeah um i wonder if we could maybe link it in the notes or something if yeah. people are wanting to access it absolutely yeah mm. for sure i will do that i'll put it in there mm. yeah you are the brains of this <laughs> <laughs> something like that <laughs> holding it together someone has to mm. um so we put out earlier in the week uh the fact that we were most likely un- unable to get a guest um to for people to get to us with a few different questions and things like that. Hmm. Um, so we've got a few we can go through and probably digress a bunch of times as well. Um, the first one that we got um, and we can start with is through your studies or other learning opportunities to get into the role that you're now in, what were some of the most valuable lessons that you learned? 
That's a hard one. Um, valuable lessons. It is a tricky <laughs> one. It's hard. I, I think it's hard because you, you kind of, like, they're they're le- le- oh, goodness. They are lessons on the ground. Yeah. They're from working that yeah. you end up often making mistakes. Mm. I think that you then then become lessons. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I think I don't think I really would have learnt any lessons that I sort of learnt in my studies wouldn't have been specifically just from my studies. Like it would have been something that I learnt whilst studying that mm. I've then implemented once working, mm. probably made a mistake or um, looked at it critically and thought I could have done this better because of X, Y and Z. Mm. Um, but valuable lessons, I think there's probably been thousands of valuable lessons along the way. They happen sort of all the time. They don't need to be mm. gigantic light bulb moments. Sometimes they're really small things about your practice or... Um, I actually, I've just, it's just come into my mind. I've got a good one. So yeah. I did a training and I, and I really hope that I don't get the, the gentleman who ran the training wrong. It's an English guy. We don't fact check, so hopefully I'm right. <laughs> Richard Rose. People will be screaming in the eye. It was Richard Rose or it was this person. But yeah, Richard Rose, if you That's look it. up, um, yeah, uh, if you look up problems, sexualized behaviors in children and young people, okay, he that's his jam. He's from the UK, so we're super lucky that um, he was in Australia to, um, you going to fact check it? No. Um, super lucky that he did the training. Anyway, there was heaps of information in there, but one of the best things that I took away was when he talked about like young people young people or more specifically like children Mm. displaying sexualized behaviors, um, we often put an adult frame or like a lens on it. Okay. So we would say like some of the examples he gave in the training, and I'm not going to give now, are a little bit, um, were a bit intimidating in terms of the nature. But for example, if one boy was touching the, the genitalia of another child, boy or girl, we would put an adult framework on that and say that he was like that it was sexualized. Yeah, okay. But and he's saying that, and and I really um, like I'm saying he's saying, but I think that it's true. Yeah. That it's not through. They're not doing the this this action um, with a sexual connotation in mind. It's exploration. Yeah, okay. Of just children, they pick up things, they put things in their mouth, they play yeah. with things, that's what they do. Mm. And so when we hear about this sort of stuff, and this makes me think of like being a case manager and someone's like, oh, the, you know, the um, the, the young person or the, the small child was uh, caught, air quotes, caught, mm. um, you know, touching another boy at school. Yeah. And you start to freak out that this child is, you know, being sexually inappropriate and what mm. have you. But actually it's not necessarily through them trying to do the wrong thing that they're yeah. exploring. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was just uh, just to take a step back, have a think about it, get some, su- like, some um, support from someone else to have a conversation about the information you've received mm. and just actually think about what is it you're hearing, what's actually driving the behaviour and what's going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think um, it's probably not through my previous studies before working, but a similar one. Um, doing in te- like uh, training whilst working, um, I think we were talking about earlier, was the somatic practice um, and talking about using sensory play um, mm. with young people in therapy. 
Um, and I think probably one of the biggest things I learned from that um, for me was around people who have experienced trauma cannot continue to work on their trauma until they feel that they're safe. Mm. And so if they're continuing to be in a place where they are not safe, so, for example, you know, um, maybe a young person who's been exposed to family violence, to then do that work with that young person who's had a horrific history, but then take they go home at the end of that appointment to their family that are still exposing them to family mm. violence, they're not safe. So for a young person to do, like, productive um, treatment, um, they need to be in a safe place to do that. And and um, the trainer that I had broke into that really specifically and going down to things like your central nervous system, your parasympathetic nervous system, and if those things are in overdrive, which a lot of young people who experience trauma are, um, you know, there's things like sensory deprivation or, you know, people inability have in a, the inability to have that mind-body connection Um and things like sensory play and utilising toys and things like that um, to bring them back into the space to try and do that work. But, yeah, one of the biggest lessons I think I've learnt that wasn't just purely about somatic practice but it encompasses all my practices that if you want to work with a person on their history or their trauma or, you know, an issue, whether that's mental health, drug and alcohol, whatever that might be, unless that person determines that they are safe to Mm. do so, no productive work can be done. Mm. Um, And I think for me at the time, it's a bit of a downer because it's like, well, sometimes you can't get them to a safe place. So what do you do until you can get them to that safe place? But it's definitely allowed me a lens when I look at certain things that have gone wrong or whatever and I've been like, yeah, well, of course that's how they've responded because they're not safe. Mm. How do you expect them to do all of this really groundbreaking, air quote, groundbreaking work Mm with you in a room where, yeah, they might be safe, you mm. might be a safe person for them, but then they go back out into the big bad world where they're not. Yeah. Um, so that's probably a, a pretty valuable lesson that I had that I apply frequently. Um, I think another one, like, talking about the sensory stuff. Yeah. I remember I was working with, um, like, a little dude. He was, I think, about 11 at the time and he was in secure welfare. So for people who aren't aware... Um, of secure welfare. So it's current, It's run by the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, it is a locked facility that is um, separate to youth justice, so it's not related to criminal matters. Mm. Um, it's by order of um, the child protection management stream, and I'm going to butcher it, but, you know, <laughs> essentially like someone very high up in CP has to, um, to consent to the young person being placed in secure welfare and it's based around their immediate safety and well-being. Yeah. So they have to be at immediate risk to themselves mm-hmm. um, to be placed there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be something like excessive substance use, um, regular absconding from their resi unit, being a missing person, um, significant concerns for their mental health or maybe the people that they're associating with, yeah. um, sexual exploitation, mm. Yeah. Yeah, so there's one boys' unit and one girls' unit in the state. Yeah. Um, and that services the whole state if if it's required. Mm. Um, but anyway, so my young person was there. Um, and anyway, hard to engage because he just wouldn't sit still, like mm. typical kind of 11-year-old that, um, you know, has experienced trauma and all these sorts of things. Hard to engage and hard to sit still, what have you. Anyway, someone had to go out and do an assessment um, and they really struggled. And I said to them, 
how did you go? They said, really, like, couldn't get anything out of him. I said, where, where were you? What were you, you know, explain to me the scenario. Oh, we were sitting in one of the rooms and um, the, the couch and the TV and what have you, and it just, we didn't get anywhere. And I said, all right, um, are you happy to go out and give it another crack? And they said, well, what would be different? I said, this time, go out, take him on the trampoline and do some bouncing with him. Yeah. And then slowly, but, you know, discreetly move your way off the trampoline and start chipping away at some questions. Mm. And they said, really? And I said, trust me. Mm. Just like. Give it a go. Give it a go. I knew and and they I started to, started to understand that it's regulating him, the bouncing, the up and the down. He felt yeah. safe. He's in a happy place. He really enjoyed it. Yeah. You go out there, the rhythm. Mm. Anyway, uh, super successful as far as it would go to yeah. that particular young person. Yeah. Um, a super successful um, assessment. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. just something different, you know, like a different angle, um, being creative. Thinking outside the box. Mm. And I think even as a worker, I've done a couple of trainings around sensory toys and, you know, a couple of self-care trainings and, and all encompassing the the idea of, um, you know, play in adults. Because mm. as adults, like, you know, as kids we play and then we sort of get to this age, you know, you, you, you transition from primary school where there's playgrounds and you get to play and then you go to high school and there isn't playgrounds and you sort of transition into this teenage, adolescence, adulthood where we don't play anymore. Mm. And it's almost like silly if we did that, you know, like if you and I were to get up and start playing a game of tag, people mm. would be like, what the fuck he's doing? Yeah. You know, like, and it's not an accepted thing. But if we watched two young people do that, like mm. children, we would be like, look at them, cute, playing a game of tag. And even for me now, you know, I play games with my nephew, for example, who's five, and I have so much fun. Yeah. But at what point did we did we go, well, we can't do that because we're mm. adults? So, mm. of course, it, of course it's regulating and, of course, it has its purpose, but it's not really something I explored until I did those trainings. But even for me as a worker, I'm an extremely fidgety person and people probably hear in the podcast, when there's background noise, it's usually, you know, me moving around because I've got I've got to move my legs every bloody 10 seconds or I want to tap my foot or mm. I, you know, I'm, I'm that person that constantly gets in trouble when I'm sitting on the couch and I'm bouncing my foot I'm and I don't realise. I don't realize, notice that. But the yeah, you're the exact same. Thing. I watch it and it's yeah. almost soothing for me watching mm. you do it because I can't put my legs across right now. <laughs> Um, but I was, yeah, chronic. My sister hates me because she used to be like, would you stop shaking your mm. foot? And I wouldn't even realise I was doing it. But it's just obviously a thing that regulates that I like doing. But um, something that I learnt through all of those trainings was they were talking about how to use sensory toys with um, young people in things like assessments and, and whatever you're doing, but then also to use them as workers. And now it's such a sort of um, collective understanding, I guess, because it's one of those up-and-coming things in the field, which is awesome, like art therapy and, and whatever else. Um, but I will sit there and play with sensory toys in meetings and it's not, I remember sitting in a training and the, the facilitator was like to me, yeah, you would have struggled in class at school. And I was like, what? And all I'd done was walk into the room and I'm always excessively early for things. So I was 20 <laughs> minutes early for the training and I just sat down and started playing because it was toys there. I was like, oh, what are these? I'm curious. Mm. Um, and she was like, yeah, you really would have struggled to pay attention in class, not because you didn't understand the stuff, but just being contained and sitting still. And I was like, that's really, how do you know that? I wouldn't even probably have made that insightful thing of myself. Mm. Um, and even now I use it. Like all the meetings I've sat in today, I was sitting there with sensory toys playing mm. with them. Admittedly one broke on me today and I'm <laughs> covered in glitter. Um, but even that twisty one I always play with where I spin it. And yeah. yeah, I'm constantly using fidgety toys and whatever else. I think it has a really, really good practice, a really good place, sorry, not practice, really, really good place in practice, not just for clients, but mm. I think for staff as well. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah I've even got a couple of rings. I've lost them now because I've over spun them, but you yeah. know, the ones that you can get the double depth and you can spin them. Yeah, yeah. So I thought maybe I could use them in meetings and it wasn't people wouldn't notice, but I've, yeah, over, they're broken. Mm. <laughs> You've over fidgeted with them. Over fidgeted. Yeah. Um, but yeah, maybe I'll, uh, more will come to me. I'll think of valuable lessons and more. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Come back. Um, so what? Uh, another question we got is: What is the what is a piece of advice that you were given and did not use, and why? In hindsight, or would you know if if, you, in, if in hindsight you could go back and change that and use it? Mm. Um. I'll kick us off because we went through these questions real quickly, and mm. for me, and it it's a pretty big one. Uh, it would be like to go to uni. Yeah. Which is funny because it's not like something small. Mm. And, I, and I absolutely take some blame of my own for that being the case because I was young and what have you and thought that I could figure it out in hindsight. And the world's changed, you know, people want higher qualifications for things and I can totally see that. Yeah. But um, like when I was at school and I talked about wanting to be a youth worker and what have you, and I think I saw like the careers counsellor and they like explained that you could do a TAFE course and things like that. Yeah. I was like, cool, that's it, that's all I need to do. Mm. And now in hindsight I've learned, you know, that you can get, um, oh gosh, you know, like all these different degrees in um, psychology and um, social work and oh, the, the list goes on yeah. and how far, like we were just chatting before, criminology and that can lead into working with offenders, which is, you know, another form of sort of social work and working with at-risk people um, because it makes it really difficult to get a... Uh, um, it makes it really difficult to get, like, higher-paying jobs, absolutely. Like, the, yeah. like that's not cut the shit. Like, mm. it's true. Mm. Um, but also more, I think, specific jobs as well. Yeah. Um, broadens your horizons, you know. Yeah. So yeah. that would be for Opens me. Opens more doors, mm. I guess. Yeah. Um, advice that I didn't take. I mean, I had that similar... The uni one, mine was the opposite though. So I had a my careers counsellor when I was in high school that you had to go and see and you talk, <laughs> what do you want to do for the rest of your life? Um, and I mean, I still don't know what I want to do with the rest of my life What do you want to do when you grow up? And that's like <laughs> fucking over 10 years later. So, yeah, I don't know how I'm supposed to answer that question. But um, at the time had said to me, I'd gone in looking at uni degrees um, and the only thing at school that I really, really excelled in was legal studies and um, textiles and cooking. <laughs> um, so if you want something sewn or you want to get into a debate, maybe that was my... my... I'm using hand actions again. I need yeah, to stop with the can. hand actions. Um, that was probably, yeah, my expertise. But um, the careers counsellor I went in and sort of had highlighted all of these studies to do in regards to legal because I was just good at legal and I was like, well, I guess I'm good at that. Maybe I should do something for that. I didn't really have anything sort of jumping out me passionately to do. Um, and my careers counsellor at the, at the time had said, you know, kids like you don't go to uni and had steered me to some TAFE courses. Yeah, right. And so as a, a fuck you, I was like, no, I'm going to go. I actually went and told my legal studies teacher and I was like, oh, I'm not going to apply for this. I don't think, you know, this is what's been said to me. And she was like, no, you will be applying for that. And she actually wrote me a letter of recommendation to get into the course, um, which was very sweet of her. What a legend. Um, so, yeah, I think that was my, and it was sort of, you know, people like you don't go to uni. I still mm. don't know why she said that, probably because I was a disruptive kid in class, but 
I mean, everybody learns differently. Oh, my God. Um, but, yeah, that was probably... I didn't take that piece of advice. And in hindsight, mm-hmm. no, I wouldn't take it again. Mm. Um, no, nah, not at all. I think there's definitely... Um, there's premise in having careers counsellors in schools, but I think they also need to be holistic in their approach. Mm. Oh, and um, I wonder what they're like now too, not, you know, okay, surely they're... They take a different approach these days, given like the amount of time since mm. we were at school. It'd be interesting to hear, actually. Yeah, I don't know what everybody else's experience is. It was actually really funny. So not that long ago, maybe last year sometime, and I hope she doesn't mind me mentioning, but a girl that I also um, went to school with and did my VCE, she she was told by the same person. I don't mean to bag her out here. We won't name names, but she was she wanted to study journalism um, at the time of leaving school and was told that it was sort of a dying art um, and not to do it. And so she took that advice and she went and studied, I think she did public relations um, and did work in public relations for a bit and had some pretty cool jobs out of that. Um, And then last year decided that she was going to go back and study journalism. And so her first piece that she released, she wrote an article about being told not to study journalism and how she was sort of, you know, taking back her own agency and empowerment and and Mm. doing it. And so she's studying it now and she released this article and she shared it on social media and it was so amazing. And I had no idea. We were in the same year. We shared classes. You know, we went to all of high school together and I had no idea that happened to her. Um, and, and obviously she had no idea that what happened to me and it started a dialogue and, I like, we spoke about how sort of that had happened to the both of us. But it would be interesting to know how many people out there took that advice mm. and what, decisions that led to them making. Mm. Um, but fucking kudos to her for going back to studies mm. after studying for years and re-picking something up. So I actually think there's a massive credit and there's a large element of bravery for people that study, get into work and then go back to study. Mm. Um, I take my hat off to everybody that I work with that studies and works at the same time. And I toy with the idea all the time. Yeah. And then I get to like the application point and I'm like, <laughs> not yeah. today. Um, a huge task. I've looked yeah. into it because of that that same, like what we're talking about, regretting what have you and, and thinking mm. about going back to it. And I've looked into it, looked about doing it online. I've looked about, you know, and I've, I've got, I'm married, I've got two kids. So it's just like that. that's busy. Mm. You know, my wife works full time. Mm. I work full time. <laughs> like how could I possibly? But, you know, there's always a way. Like we were chatting to someone earlier that's doing a unit, yeah. a trimester, just yeah. to tick away, chip away at it and, and I said to her, like, absolutely, um, like, fair play to you for doing that. And But, yeah, I, I think, it, like, a bit like you think about it, I'm just like, oh, shit. And I'm and not married is... and I don't have kids at home, so I shouldn't. <laughs> Do you know the biggest thing? The cost, I don't care about that. I'm yeah. like, whatever, I'll hex it. Yeah, the true. biggest thing, the biggest two things for me, which we've just been discussing, was I'd be scared that I wouldn't know how to reference mm. or write like reports and things when I do that for work all yeah, the time. Yeah. So I don't know why I've got such an anxiety around it. And two is the placements mm. because a lot of, there's some places that don't, you don't have to do a practical placement, but some do. And I don't know how I would not work for three months. Yeah. I could obviously save up annual leave and do things like that. I could be creative, but that's a big smokescreen for me, mm. thinking that I couldn't do my job for three months to go and do a student placement. Not because I wouldn't want to. I'd love to do more student placements just to experience other careers and get a feel for you know, you get the inside goss, I guess, when you do, not goss as in like gossip, I mean like gossip is like the internal workings of organisations because everybody's different mm. um, and that's all, all really good to build on those knowledge like externally and network. Um, 
you know, I guess it does come back to money though. Like I still have to pay my rent. Yeah. There's still the world continues whether you want to study or not. Mm. Although I encourage everybody to do it. I'm That's not, it. I'm not lagging on further study. No, not at all. And all I would say, like, on that, when you're saying about, like, someone taking the advice that they were given and then going back and changing it or if you're unsure, and I would imagine, like, most people listening to this, which is probably about five people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, but I would imagine most people... in a people, cynical mood today. I am a bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> oh, man. Um, but I would imagine most people listening to this are working in this industry. Yeah. But I suppose a piece of advice I would give, and I give this to people a lot, um, is if you don't, if you finish school or at any point really like if you don't know what you want to do and you think you want to study, like go and travel. Mm. And I'm not like, don't get me wrong, I'm not like speaking from a place where I went and like lived in India for a year and was like, you know, like full on um, like a nomad and all this sort of stuff when I found myself. Like I did a few things between um, finishing school and kind of starting a career and what have you. Um, But I met a lot of people. Like I worked at a summer camp. I think I've talked about it once or twice. Like I worked at a summer camp for, I think it was five or six summers. Oh wow! In a row, yeah, yeah. I went to go. I was gonna. This is so. This is the thing, right? So I was meant to do one, yeah, and then come back and go to uni, right? Six years later. <laughs> no uni call, but six summers and six summers. Where? In the, what countries? In America. All in America, right? All, and all at the same camp. You know when people talk so about Camp you, America? Yeah, no, no, I know yeah, about I, it. But did you, I, in my head, when you said five summers, I had yeah. this image of you just travelling around the world chasing summers, not in the one place yeah, doing five no, I get different years. Yeah, sorry. No, I no. made a story of that in my head. Yeah, yeah. No, mm. so it's super convenient. If you're Australian, it's super convenient because obviously their summer is in like our June and it's, yeah, our winter. And then so I would go, I would normally leave Australia like May, June mm. and then go there and then I'd normally get in, go in, get into the States and maybe like LA or New York mm. and do something or go up to like a one one time or two times I went to Canada first and then came back down um, and then did camp, which was two or three months or so. Yeah. Um, and then travel a little bit afterwards. And then one year I went and lived in England for a bit and then came back and then went to camp again. Yeah. Um, but my point is, is like a lot of people would go to camp thinking that it would be a good experience for them to then progress with their career, whether it was like working with young people, being a teacher. Yeah. Um, some people, because camp has multiple areas. There's like a waterfront. Like our camp was beautiful. It was set on like a lake with a dock. Like it was fucking amazing. Mm. Um, there's like a whole sports section. There's an outdoor like rock climbing and abseiling section arts and craft, like a science sort of space, video and, and music, like heaps of these wow. different categories. Yeah, it was sweet. Um, so a lot of people would go there in kind of their field of interest right. that could then end up giving them experience to work on that field in their future. Okay. But some people would go um, and then realise they didn't want to work with young young people or kids, you know yeah. what I mean? Or, and, or like this one guy I know... Um, he now owns a few restaurants in England. Wow. And I've, I was for sure, like, going to be a social worker for the rest of his life sort of thing. Okay. Um, and I'm not sure what led him down that path. But, yeah, so going all the way back, it's just like if you're not sure and you're thinking about this and that, go spend a year. It's not going to be the end of the world. Yeah. Um, and it will probably help you realise that you want to do something or it will help you realise that you actually really do want to do that thing. Mm. I think there's the other, the other aspect to, to yeah. it as well. I think the other thing about travel is that, you learn so much about yourself when you do travel. Mm. I think um, 
even like simple things like navigating Mm -hmm. a different country that, you know, it might even be like the States where everyone speaks English and it's, you know, not too confronting as as a foreign language, but you learn about yourself, um, I guess, in the things that you have to deal with, like Mm. things come up and, Mm. um, you know, it's quite an insightful thing. And I've, so I've travelled, I've never travelled alone though. And in hindsight, if that's something that I could look back over the years, um, I would have done more travel. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I travelled alone for most of it and I totally, um, that is totally my situation, didn't go to these like fully remote, crazy places that, I would have loved to. And that's another hindsight. Like I spent six years going in and out of America when I could have easily spent six years going in and out of multiple countries and yeah. things like that. Um, still super lucky to have the ability to have even done that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, yeah, I think, uh, but, yeah, travelling was cool. Like I, like I remember I went to France and France at least then, and I think probably now is kind of stereotypically or notoriously known for like people not really wanting to speak English. They, yeah, they're very like proud a, of the French French language and the, yeah, you and quite offended. And, yeah, yeah. So I try my best to to at least break the ice by oh asking God. people in French, like, "Do you speak English?" Can you please say? I think it was like "Bapu ba balay pu anglais." Okay. Yeah, I think it was, or I could have got that in, around the wrong way. Yeah, um, we don't fact check it. Doesn't matter. No, that's right. I could have said anything. Yeah. Um, my claim to fame is that I can say "Hello, how are you?" in in French, but I've said that to multiple people now, and they're. It's not so wrong. That's good. Keep, <laughs> on, what's your one? Komisuwa. Oh, <laughs> I feel like that's too well, Bonjour komisuwa. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Very good. I don't um, know who taught me that either. Yeah. I've just held on to it for donkey's years. But yeah. I've been been told it's not right. Yeah. But, you know, you gave it a shot. But, yeah, long story short, I, I had to navigate from the, um, the airport to the train station, train station to my hostel, with like, and it was before iPhones and stuff, at least not when you would have the ability to set like an iPhone up in another country and jump right. on Wi-Fi at every second cafe and stuff. Yeah, Google Maps, all that. Yeah, so I was like asking people. I even asked the police <laughs> and I had this massive fucking backpack on my back. I was exhausted um, how to get to this little ho- hostel I was staying at and they're just like, oh, you know, in French, like we don't speak English. And I'm like, fuck off, mate. You're a police officer. Like you, ha- like, you have to. I'm sure you do, but you anyway. know. It took me like the best part of the day. It was just a oh, fucking nightmare. It was horrible. Honestly, yeah. so horrible. And then the hostile side, it was just an absolute fucking nightmare. But anyway. Um, but they're all very good learning experiences, yeah. I think. And yeah. even even though I've never travelled alone, but even travelling with friends have been fantastic <laughs> learning experiences for me. For, yeah. um, you know, to learn more about myself. Because mm. when you're in confined environments with people for an extended period of time, eventually things are going to happen, mm. you know. And being able to learn about how you function in certain situations that might be quite stressful is actually good to know. Like I remember when we were in, um, I went to Thailand with a um, girlfriend of mine and I was like, I'm so bloody glad she's got this down pat because I couldn't even cross the fucking road. And I was shitting myself. And I was like, if I was here alone, I literally would have been backpack on my back, sitting on the side of a street, smoking a cigarette, crying, (laughs) just being like, I want to go home. (laughs) At least the cigarettes wouldn't have been too expensive, though. Yeah, two buckets for a 20-pack. Bargain. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it, but it's an interesting thing to learn about yourself and how you function in certain situations. And I think really good character building. Yeah. Really good character building. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. We digress, as I imagine we would. Always. Uh, another question was, what aspect of your roles are the most challenging? Ooh. 
I would say like systemic issues. Mm, go on. Um, I just think that um, the systems that we work within, uh, they're not the best mm. um, and that's not slagging out the government or, you know, youth justice or corrections or child protection um, in any way because I think that the jobs, there's a job that needs to be done there absolutely. Mm. Um, but systemically I think that people are victimised and placed in the system and then victimised by the system that is supposed to protect them. Mm. Um, and that's probably something that I have really struggled with um, my whole career um, and that's, you know, it's taken a, a very extended part of my career to realise that not being a part of those, trying not to be a part of those systems or, you know, slagging out those systems or being negative or <clears throat> um, whatever my personal beliefs and values about them might be isn't actually solving anything. And I'm a big believer of don't come to me with a problem, mm. come to me with a solution. And that's not, you might not have a solution, but don't just come to me with an issue and say, you know, X, Y and Z, fix it. Mm. Like let's work collaborative on this. And that was probably something that a, a uni teacher um said to me in a lecture, like, don't come to me with a problem mm. of, like, I can't do this assignment, that's it. Come to me with the problem and possible solutions and we'll figure mm. it out together. And I'm very big on that. Like, I um, use that a lot with even the work I do with young people. Don't just come to me with a, like, if they're coming to me, obviously there's within reason, but if it's an issue about something or, you know, I want to get a, a new, new phone. phone. Yeah, I want to get a new phone. Okay, well, fact, I know we, we both said phone. It's yeah, a big thing. It's so common. It's it? a big thing. So but good. don't just come to me, mm. you know, oh, I need a new phone. All right, mm. cool. Like, let's figure that out. But mm. also, you know, okay, you need a new phone. What are the steps that we can take to get there? You know, let's make this collaborative. Um. So, yeah, I think for My me... My first question is, well, what happened to the last phone that I bought you? Yeah, I bought you a phone yesterday. <laughs> um. But, yeah, I think for me a big realisation was you are a preacher of don't be a part of the problem, be a part of the solution. And if you can't be a part of the solution, don't be negative about it. So if I don't like the system, don't want to be a part of it, then try and be a part of the solution. Mm. You know, and I think for me a big a big learning curve for me is I don't like the system as a worker and I'm not mm. in the system. Mm. Imagine how our young people feel that, you know, are victims of whatever, become a part of the system and then are victims of the system. Um, imagine how they feel. So I think for me that's probably a big motivator in, you know, the work. And the work that I do now is don't hate on a certain system from the outside and just be, you know, a bigot about it. Maybe try and be a part of that to make proactive change, um, you know, and that might be I think even I've thought before, oh, what the fuck am I going to, what, what can I do as just me as a worker to change a system? I can't change systems. I can't change laws. I can't change, um, you know, government bodies or frameworks, whatever that might be, um, I think that's a very cynical way now to think about it, though, mm. because sometimes you might not be, you might not make massive changes, but you will make minor changes that lead to bigger changes mm. um, or, or minimal changes that you think, but they might not be minimal to you, you know. Um, things are constantly changing and evolving. So, yeah, that would be my, the big, the thing I struggle the most with is the systemic shit. <laughs> yeah, and it is. It's like, um, it's like a big machine yeah. functioning. Um, I think I'm ve like a very visual person in terms of my own head and I actually just picture like this big machine like moving and working mm. that just doesn't and that it's, it's like that it's, um, that it's now functioning in a way that it was never intended to be when it was built. Yeah. We never intended it to function in this way. 
but mm. it is. There's nothing that we, that we can do to stop it anymore. Mm. But we have to accept that. Yeah. You know, I picture like residential care. Like we never, okay. no, say, say we, I mean we as a population or, a, you know, people in this Community. system, mm. never intend, like we set up residential care to support young people who could no longer live at home. Mm. <clears throat> I think in an ideal world we would hope that there would be enough foster parents and home-based carers to look after every single young person that can't live at, at home. Mm. But unfortunately we can't and to yeah. not have old school like orphanages and boys' homes and what have you, yeah. we've got residential care houses um, that have, you know, two or four young people in them. Mm. And that alone would be great if they could stay there and sort of live successfully in those houses, in those little groups, being supported by staff for years on end and hopefully be successful but they don't they they have to move and mm. mixes between young between like the young people in the houses it's constantly changing yeah dynamics yeah safety so it's not the, the machine that was built's not functioning the way we would have wanted it to yeah um and i sometimes have to rest my you know rest my sort of whatever on the fact that i know that the system wasn't built for this yeah we didn't want this we didn't want this 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 scenario mm. um that when it was set up, that's what it wasn't intended for. Mm. And I think that's the hard thing as well. Like when I say I'm not slagging out the workers, like for me, I I couldn't, I don't know if I could be a child protection worker, which mm. the irony in that is when I was younger, I was like, yeah, I could, that's that's what I'll do. I'll work for child protection, you know. Um, I don't think I could do that now. And I don't think the people that I work with that, you know, are workers of child protection, I don't think that they... They think it's the best either, but I think they're doing the best to their ability in, in a system mm. that is outdated. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's hard because it, it's that's not the intention. We we would never intend for a young person to be living in a space like that. We wouldn't yeah. want that. Um, you know, we want the best support and the best environment for them. So I think it's it's hard, but it's also, yeah, making changes in those spaces is mm. it would be the long haul. Yeah. 100%. Mm. What mm. about you? Um, or are you, you you're riding the systemic bandwagon with me? No, I'm trying to have a think. So, and I've, first of all, I just, I, when you're talking about Resi, I just want to shout out like Resi workers again. Yeah. I know the that, real MVPs. Yeah. <laughs> and if, if you're doing it, especially at the moment, like coronavirus, yeah. you're still going to work and you're supporting those young people. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, and it is like the, one of the hardest jobs that you could do. Yeah. Um, and for anyone that is, and I know we've had questions on the page, people asking and heaps of really positive. Actually, if I could say that, if you're on the Facebook page and if you saw the post that a young lady put out, oh, I'm calling her young, I'm assuming she is, um, that she was doing a, her first resi shift yeah. in a few days, which was a few months ago now. Yeah. But I saw the post come up and she said, I've got, I'm starting in resi in a few days. Uh, has anyone got any advice? And I was like, ooh, because I just was waiting. For the negative. Yeah. And no offence to people. Yeah. Yeah. But people getting just kind of giving it the hard time. Yeah. Which it is. Yeah. But there was like 30 maybe more comments of just really Really? constructive. Yeah. Positive. Encouraging. Yeah. 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 That was awesome. I remember you coming um, into work the next day and being like, how good is this? Because Mm. I, like you'd said, your initial thought was that people were going to be like, Resi sucks, don't do it. Mm. Um, and you're right, it is so hard. Like so I often hard. think, you know, you hear a lot of people that have come out of uni and gone and done Resi shift work to get their foot in the door and anytime someone's like to me, oh, yeah, I used to work in Resi, I'm like, Phew. Yeah. 
you are the real MVP here. Yeah. Because I couldn't do it. It's, yeah. I couldn't do it. And not because I don't... Um, I think if I really had to, like if I lost my job and that was the only option, I could probably bite the bullet and do it. Mm. But it is incessant work mm. and it is... Quite a, thankless too. Yeah, really thankless and it's really hard, I think, as workers, like for me, I get to work consistently with, you know, my clients and they mm. get to know me and you build a rapport and you have a relationship and um, that connection there is very, very different to a resi worker that just might be on shift for their first shift and they might be an agency worker and they might work in 15 different resis, you know, and, and you're working with pretty highly vulnerable, traumatised young people that are just going to tell you to get fucked sometimes, you know, <laughs> yeah. and they're going to punch walls or, you know, shit might go down. And I think for me not having that rapport with a young person or being having the ability to build that rapport, um, the longevity there, I don't mm. know if I could. Mm. Yeah, that would break my heart, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's full on. Yeah, the hat's um, off to them. Absolutely, hun, hun, yeah, 100%. Mm. Aspects of the role that are challenging. Um, it's such a hard one because it's really like, I think that, I don't know, I'm going to take the easy way out. I don't want to take the easy way out. <gasps> don't take like, the easy way out. Because the easy, it, I was going to say like it's all hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, I think for me, my, most of my kind of background uh, is around like youth justice and youth offending. And I think for me the struggle is or the thing that I've always found challenging is that you can only control so much. Yeah. And you want to control more. And what I mean, so what I mean by that is um is that I think when young people reoffend and you're case managing them or working with them, or even when I was working in youth justice, um, like when I, yeah, working at Parkville, that when young people would come back after they'd been released just an element of frustration that that it had happened. Yeah. And I think accepting that and, and then trying to find the the little wins mm-hmm. within your own work. Yeah. And that the biggest goal would be for them not to re-offend. But Absolutely. you're not, but you're not actually necessarily, at least not single-handedly, obviously, gonna be able to achieve that goal, but just being able to contribute small parts to their life while you're working with them. Yeah. Um and yeah. you're right, and I think even if we reflect, I think you've told the story before about the young man who wouldn't take his hat off when he was coming <laughs> inside or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even that role modelling behaviour mm. for him would be massive. And it might be, you know, he might have been a recidivist offender. He might have been, you know, that, that swinging door, coming in and going out, coming in and going out. But there might have been some role model things around you know, you take your hat off when you go inside mm. or go to school or yeah. you know, the the small wins amongst that are yeah. huge. Yeah. And I, like, even for me, I'm, my clients probably hate me, but I'm always like, sorry, was there manners in there? Yeah. If they ask me to do something, sorry, do I hear you say please or thank? I don't, mm. my hearing's off today. Yeah. And I always, you know, take the piss a little bit. Mm. But if they use their manners and then when they do, I'm like, good job on the manners there. Yeah. And they, they think it's stupid and they're always, oh, yeah, on the manners. But then when I watch them approach other people and say, oh, excuse me or please and thank you, I'm like, yes, yeah. that's right yeah. because that will continue on later in life. Yeah, like please give me the fucking money. Yeah. Yeah. Please just... give me fucking car keys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, and you're right. Maybe man. don't call someone a dog cunt in the middle of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. you're right, yeah. But it's the small things and it's that's a lesson to learn though. I think it's sometimes the work is very thankless and 
I think if I even reflect on my time, the blue sky dreaming sort of stuff, I'd be the same, you know, working at corrections. These guys are never going to offend again. And, you know, we're going to do all of their treatment and rehab and it's gonna, they're going to live prosperous lives. And, you know, the, the win there might have been that they showed up to majority of their appointments on time. Yeah. Because for them, they've never had to do that before. Yeah, that's right. Um, or they've used their manners when asking for something. Mm. Or, you know, instead of cracking the shits and punching a hole in a wall, they left and they went for a walk. Mm. You know, it doesn't need to be the big, you know, they went on and got full-time jobs and studied at uni. And, and yeah. you know, that does happen. But, mm. but being able to be thankful for the small things as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I think if you... I think if you don't realise that you need to shoot for the small things and be thankful for the small things and you're only thinking about the big things, mm. that, that, that's when you get things like burnout or frustration mm. or, like, it starts to impact you more personally, yeah. I think, if, you, if you're getting disappointed that, that yeah, that you're not, that you're, the, the young people or the clients that you're working with aren't meeting big goals. Yeah. Yeah. And our goals and their goals might be two very different so things. True. It's just like my goals and your goals would be two very different things. Like if I said, you know, today our goal is to go and do, what's the martial arts you do? Um, barely do, Mu- uh, Muay Thai. <laughs> Muay Thai. Yeah. So if I was like, all right, we're going to go do a Muay Thai class, I would yeah. fucking suck. Sure. I can tell you that I would fucking, I fucking suck. suck too, you would, yeah. But you would be better than me sure. because that's something that you're, you've yeah. you've got a history in and that you've, um, I guess, got an interest in. They're differing levels. It's mm. like when we when we bang on about making smart goals, you mm. know, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, timely. You know, we we utilize that for ourselves, but also being able to utilize that in a framework, realizing that we all live in different worlds with different mm. um, aspects. And I think like bringing it back even to a couple of things that people have said about, you know you can't measure people's trauma. Mm. Like if one kid's been the victim of domestic violence and one kid has been the victim of sexual exploitation or sexual assault, no one's worse than the other. Mm. You can't measure their trauma. Mm. And I think someone once said it to me, I think it was in a training that I did, that when you imagine a baby, a baby crying, you know, and you're trying to figure out the signals of is it hungry, does it need a nappy change, is it in pain, you know, maybe they've got, um, they're teething, they've got a toothache. For that baby there in that moment, that is the worst pain they've ever experienced, mm. you know, because we, we build on our bases of pain throughout our life, you know. Um, you know, so for them right there in that moment, that is the worst thing. You know, for that young person that is exposed to family violence or the victim of family violence, that is the worst thing. For that person who's been sexually assaulted, that is the worst thing. And you can't sit there and measure people's trauma mm. and say, oh, you know, well, that one was that one was raped and that one was only punched in the face. Mm. Because for that person, that is the worst experience that they've had mm, to date. Mm. Um, yeah, that was a bit of a... No, I like that, though. I've never heard that um, analogy. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. It's a good point. Yeah, so I think for a young person, you know, getting a full-time job might not be realistic. Mm. But taking them to see volunteer opportunities might be, mm. you know, or finding something that they're interested in you know, say they're interested in animals. A lot of young people are interested in animals. You know, not necessarily being like, all right, let's go to blah, blah, and you're going to volunteer and then work there full time and that's your job, animal studies. Mm. Maybe just taking them to the zoo mm. and observing a zookeeper feed the giraffes. Maybe that's a realistic goal for them. Yeah. And being able to encompass that in your world, yeah. I guess, is what I'm getting at. Um, Muay Thai is not going to be something I pick up or experiment in, though. I actually think you really enjoy it. Okay. Um, 
but that's another, you know, I can convince you to do that outside of the podcast. Mm. But you're right. I think, um, like, I know, and you've probably got a similar experience or um, example, but I know, like, when a client rang, has rung me and said, hey, uh, like, whatever, not feeling the best or I think I'm pregnant or whatever, mm. uh, I've booked myself in for a doctor's appointment, blah, blah, blah. I'm kind of like, fuck yeah. Like, Good job. Awesome. Like, yeah. how, like, how great is that? And it, to me or to someone else, that might sound so simple or what have you. Yeah. But that is a huge achievement, depending yeah. on the client. Yeah. But for that particular client or, you know, in their circumstance, that's a massive achievement. Yeah. Um, I've yeah. even been like, hey, dude, really good job on answering the phone today to <laughs> yeah. blah, blah. So true. But so true. Like yeah. how many times do you have kids that, like, deliberately avoid certain services or certain people or, you know, and not because they don't like that person, but they might not be ready to talk about their mental health or mm. they might not be ready to talk about drug and alcohol. It just might not be the time for them. Mm. So little things like, hey, good job on answering that call and not screening it this week. Yeah. You know, really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for them, they might even think you're stupid in saying that. Yeah. And sometimes they will call you out on that. But being like, no, actually, that is a big thing. Because mm. even I think about me, I should probably go, I've got a, a, a screen, a Dorovich screen to go and get my bloods taken that <laughs> I was supposed to do in February. It's just, it's a fucking like, um, just like a decorative green piece of paper in my diary now. <laughs> and it'll stay there and I haven't done it. It's probably expired. I probably have to go get a new one. Yeah. But, you know, when we think about, and there's some people in my life that would have, like my housemate would have gone and got that blood test the day she got that slip. And I was like, don't really like blood tests, not going to do it. I'm yeah. fooling myself, Yeah. you know. But for some people, going and doing that might be small to others, but it's big for them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, nice one. Um, what, so the question is, what are some must-read books or must-watch documentaries? And I'm adding movies uh, into that. So there's a few uh, that I think we'll end up coming coming up with, mm. um, you were chatting, well, when we were chatting just before we started. Yeah, so I said a couple. Um, a boy, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog by Bruce Perry is a phenomenal book. So it's um, it, it goes through a number of different um, stories but talks about his, I guess, initial um, sort of uh, when he first got into the field in child psychology um, and little snippets of stories and, and what he did and his learnings and sort of like an insight, I guess, into his diary um, of working with young people. I found that a really informative um, book. Um, not to do with youth work or social work at all, no, but right. I think um, An Ordinary Day is a really good book. Um I believe it's by Lee Staples. I'm going to Google it while I'm saying it. I'm fact-checking myself but because it's such a good yeah. book. I want you guys to read it. Um, but sh she, I believe, is a female author, uh, Australian author. Um, called, yeah, so the book's called An Ordinary Day and it, it talks about sort of um, big things that have happened in the world. So it goes through... Um, you know, Princess Diana dying, it talks about 9-11, um, you know, those big sort of things that have happened in our world and mm. things that people of a certain age would remember. Mm. Like I remember Princess Di dying and I admittedly was obsessed with her, but um, I remember that and I remember being devastated and sitting in front of the TV, um, like watching all of the broadcasts about her. Yeah, right. Um, and so she talks about that. She was, She's a reporter um, who covered a lot of those things. Um, and so she talks about being thankful for the ordinary days. Yeah, Because okay. sometimes we forget to be. 
Um, and she talks to victims of um, specific things. So there was the Threadbow landslide and there was a man there who his wife died but he survived. Yeah. And so it talks about him and I think it was his, his first wife died potentially mm. cancer. Mm. His second wife died with him in the landslide at Threadbow in the cabin yeah. and he survived. Um, and she interviews him and she talks about how all of these people who have faced horrific um, things in their life aren't bitter and they aren't negative and they always bring it back to being positive and thankful for things. And so the, the whole of the book is her saying to be thankful for the ordinary days because mm. at the time they might seem mundane and boring or whatever, but these are actually the thing, the days we should be thankful for because God knows what's coming next. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's an awesome one. I'm trying to bloody bring it up. I'm obviously shit at multitasking here. The... Um... Yeah, Threadbow, that reminds it's so funny you said Threadbow because I think some people, like, I don't know, I shouldn't say I think some people, I've got no fucking idea what some people have remembered or forgot. But before you Do go, you it's think, yeah. any, any Ordinary Day okay. by Lee Sales. Sales, okay. Not Staples, I made up her name. Yeah, Blindsides, Resilience and What Happens After the Worst Days of Your Life yeah. is a really good book. Mm. Really good book. Yeah, the, yeah, Threadbow. Um, yeah. Stuart Diver. Yes. Yeah, Fiverr. There's, yes. you know, a modern-day rhyme and slang. Um, but I remember there was, oh, I wish I could find it because from memory it was awesome. I think Channel 7 did like a like a movie, like a two-part movie about the Threadbow landslide. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, he was that was in bed because the landslide happened at night. Yeah. And I think that um, he was lying next to his dead wife for like days while they tried while, to get yeah. him out. Yeah. yeah, and he even speaks about, so she interviews him and is like, you know, are you going to get married again? Because he's still young. He has yeah. a kid. I think he's got one kid. They still live in Threadbow. Like, he still lives up in the ski Jeez. resort up there. Um, and he's like, you know, if it came down to it, yeah, I would. I feel bad for for her being the, you know, third wife of someone who's lost two wives. Um, but, like, just the people in their stories, they're mm. still so thankful for what they've got. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, for me, I, I really enjoyed that book. Um, and Chasing the Scream was the other one I brought up That's by, right. I think his name's Johan. Oh, I'm going to butcher these and I should have written them down. But Chasing the Scream um, is a book written around the war on drugs. And so it goes, yeah, Johan Hari, Johan Hari. That's right. Um, and he talks about, he's got a couple of books now that are good, but Chasing the Scream I really enjoyed. He talks about the war on drugs and he initially started um, his investigations, I guess, because of his personal experience. So he had a partner who was a substance user and family who um, who had abused drugs throughout his life and he sort of had this intimate relationship with, I guess, people who use drugs and wanted to understand that more. And then he travelled around the world and interviewed people, you know, um, a transgender man living in Harlem <laughs> and yeah, he right. interviewed, you know, a, a Spanish woman whose daughter had been taken by the Mexican mafia um, and all of these people who were impacted by the war on drugs and mm. talks about how prohibition and how that came about and, and what the war on drugs really is at its core and talks about, you know, the opposite to addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. Mm. And he talks about Rat Park, which is a really famous, um, you know, if you guys want to look at it, just YouTube Rat Park and it'll come up, but a really famous experiment that um, they did on rats that they got addicted to cocaine. Mm. Um, and... Yeah, so he just talks about that and he brings it out and the whole idea of it is all of these people that he's interviewed and everything that he learned um, was around we're, we're battling addiction wrong. We're not 
the, the ideal goal here isn't to get them from being addicted to sober. It's about creating connection for them. And he talks about the Vietnam War, you know, the vets coming back and they was concerned they'd be addicted, um, you know, to opioids coming home. And, and that didn't that didn't happen, you know, and they talk about how they came home to loving families and warm cooked meals and people that they loved and, you know, all the things that we think of when we speak about connection. Mm-hmm. Um and we think about these people who, you know, people who do use substances and become entrenched substance users. And they, you know, you think about the low socioeconomic and the, the low job opportunities and education opportunities and all that sort of stuff. And he talks, and then he also goes to, you know, Switzerland and some countries that are doing fucking like ahead of the ball game stuff, you know, and the changes that they've seen. And um, he campaigns a lot. So he's I've gone and seen him speak in Australia, in Melbourne, a couple of times. He um, did presentations with harm reduction with Victoria and about, you know, um, combating the war on drugs and what are we trying to achieve here? Because if what we're trying to achieve is a drug-free world, we're going about it the wrong way. Mm. Um, and I like that because he's very he's got the statistics and he's got the articles and the backup. It's not just I've written this fluffy story without really investigating it. Mm. Um, and you get the real the real deal. Um, so that's a really cool book. Um, I blabbered on around that one for a bit. No, you no. had a movie that you were... Yeah, yeah. So just quickly, though, Joe, there's a really good... Um, I shouldn't say it's really good. I'm sure it is really good. I um, I listened to it, I'm sure. Yeah, Johan Hari was on the Joe Rogan podcast. He was. Yeah. Was it a good interview? I don't ever remember it. It's interesting. I have seen him speak and I think he speaks really well. I didn't rate the Joe Rogan one. Um, <laughs> I know, how dare you? And I'm like a diehard Joe Rogan fan. I love That's him. It. Um, but not because of Joe Rogan. I think yeah. that it's something that he's, um, Yo, Johan, I think I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. I think it's something that he's really passionate about. And he, he the vibe I got was that he couldn't sit there and shoot the shit with Joe about it mm. because he's so passionate about it and he needs to, he wants to get the message across. So I think he's someone who speaks really well publicly yeah, because it's something that's close to his heart. But being interviewed, mm. um, yeah, I didn't froth that one. But maybe a bit because he did a lot of talking and I love Joe Rogan and I love when Joe Rogan gets to the nitty-gritty yeah. stuff. Um, the best Joe Rogan one in regards to, like, I guess, relevant to the youth and social work field is the one I, that, that I personally reckon is with Kelly Brogan. Oh, you've mentioned that. She's I don't got know a book I've too that's actually pretty good. Um, yeah. I think it's called... Uh, no, I can't remember the name of it, but Kelly Brogan, Google her. She's a psychiatrist in the States um, and her whole career now, she's a psychiatrist, but she's sort of switched it and now she's doing holistic stuff and she's got a her own treatment centre where long-term um, people who have been prescribed long-term medications go there and get off them. Um, and so she works with the people, you know, who have been on, you know, significant antidepressants their whole life and, and can't function without them. And she does that through holistic means. Mm. Um, but she does one with Joe Rogan. That That's how I fell in love with Joe Rogan, yeah. actually. So I was pretty keen on her as a person. Um, and her story intrigues me because she talks about getting threats from, like, the Board of Psychiatry in the States and wow. being kicked off things and being shunned because she, she challenged the narrative. Mm. You know, we don't need to just be prescribing all the time. Mm. Prescribing isn't the sole answer here. But that's how we make money. Exactly right. And mm. so because she went up against, you know, the mm. PBS and all those sort of people, she she um, saw a lot of roadblocks in her career and I think it's fucking brave that she kept going with it. Mm. Um, but, yeah, so I think I love Joe Rogan. So I think maybe he didn't speak as much in that one and maybe that's why mm. I didn't enjoy it as much. And yeah, I've, yeah. I've done a lot of research into 
a lot of the speaks, so maybe, yeah, mm. wasn't the one for me. Yeah. Oh, and they can't give it a listen. Yeah, 100%. Like, the things hit and miss all the time, don't they? Yeah. Oh, um, and when you're in different moods, like, if I'm tired driving home from work, that is not the time to listen to an intellectual podcast. True. So listen to this one instead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, so funny. Um, just, I guess, going on the um, podcast line, uh, there's Experts on Expert yeah. um, by Dak Shepard. Um, I like him. Yeah, he's, he's hilarious. Funny. Yeah. He is uh, a um, recovered um, drug addict, substance yeah. user yeah. as well, um, which I think is um, adds a bit of um, bit of flavour to his podcast because he gets a lot of – so it's called Expert on Experts and then within the podcast he calls it Armchair Expert. It gets a little confusing. Yeah. But um, nonetheless, um, yeah, he's, he's great. And he did one with Nadine Burke-Harris – Okay. who is an American paediatrician, uh, and she was working, in, uh, I think it was in, I think it was in California, um, and then she California. ended up going in, hey? Sorry, I said no, California. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she ended up starting her own, um, I guess, like service facility. Yeah. Um, she talks about childhood trauma in the podcast and she did she's got a TED talk as well, the ACEs stuff, the yeah. adverse childhood she's experiences. A vibe. Yeah. yeah. I've listened to her TED talk. I love it. Mm. Yeah. So that was cool. That so the ACEs in my rudimentary explanation is adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. And the way that she um, presents it is that um that I think it's five or more or it could be three or more. That if young people have had three or five or a completely different number, but it's reasonably low, um, adverse childhood experiences, it increases their risk not only of like um, mental health, but physical health. Yeah, autoimmune um, diseases, yeah. heart disease, obesity, cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which was like, yeah, it was really eye opening um, and a really, really interesting um, conversation mm. to listen to. Yeah. Um, so that was a cool one. I really enjoyed that podcast. Mm. The movie that you were talking about, yeah, so slightly... Before you talk about the movie, yeah, quickly, go, can go, I go. just say, um, Aces, you've reminded me because you've said Aces, that's why I quickly just looked up. The Body Keeps Score is a book by Bessel van der Kolk. Well, what a bloody legend. But he talks about in there, he goes through um, Aces um, and there's, there was one before Aces that they did, but it wasn't the, something about the data collection. I can't really remember the story. But, okay. um, yeah, The Body Keeps Score. Um, it's a book about trauma mm. um, and young people living with trauma and about how, um, you know, you might experience something in childhood that you don't physically see a reaction, but your body does keep score is mm. the whole concept there. Um, is a really good read and goes, um, is, is quite, uh, like, academic, but gets into it in, in really layman's terms. It's not like um, you would read it and get lost in the narrative. Okay. Um, but, yeah, that's an awesome, another awesome one to look up. Yeah, nice. Sorry. So the camp I worked at was um, it's a camp for young for children with um, autism, Asperger's, ADD, ADHD, stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, which gave me the interest in, like, the movie. So it's called The Black Balloon and it's an Aussie movie um, about a family with a young like with a child who's, I think he's like an adolescent in in terms of the timeline in the movie yeah. um, with autism and it's just so well acted out. Like the, I guess even like I'm not trying to be disrespectful with the movements and the way that he would speak and mm. his reaction and the timing that he portrayed in the film just so echoed the kind of stereotypical 
um, behaviors of a, a, a child with autism. Mm. It's just so good, um, yeah. just so well done, and it's just a really real um, view on life working with living with um, a young person or a child with autism. Yeah. So it's just really accurate. Um, and another one, I guess, in that theme, um, which is awesome because I've forgotten the name of it. <laughs> just quickly while you think. I've, mm. I'm, I'll look it up. Yeah. Okay. I'm really in love with the concept that, um, what was it? Sorry, The Black Balloon. Mm. Yeah, The Black Balloon is an Aussie movie because Aussie movies get such a bad rap. Yeah. So I'm stoked that it's a good one. I'm going to have to give it a give it a look-see. Yeah, it's really good. Another, I guess, speaking of Aussie movies, while well, I just quickly look this one up, and a lot of people will um will have seen it, but I think at the very start of it, kind of tells a, a really neat story. Is Animal Kingdom? Yeah. Just with the young man, um, Jay or Josh, yeah. the, with um his mum, um, overdosing, and yeah, I just feel like it was really raw, and I felt like it was quite accurate. And yeah. I know the movie ends up going on to talk about like the Pettingill family and the criminal side of things and what have you, which. Um, there's definitely a glorification of the California vibe there. But it's... No, no, so you're thinking of the TV show. Yeah. Yeah, no, so there's an Australian movie which they base the TV show off. right, because that exact same scene is how the TV series series starts. So the series is a spin-off of the the movie. Right. And then they've done, like, the Hollywood version. Mm. So, yeah, it's... uh, I mean, if you listen to... um, Ah, oh, there it is. Um, yeah, so Animal Kingdom is the story of, and I don't know if they actually even name the family, but everyone knows yeah. that it's based on the Pettingill family, mm. the underworld, you know, criminal family in Melbourne, what have you. Mm. But just the very start of it anyway, I think, is just like a really raw and kind of really well-made look at life of someone whose family are, you know, disadvantaged and like the mum, you know, dying of a heroin overdose and like kind of his reaction Mm. to it it's um it's just really well acted yeah mm, it's just really good uh so i found that one i was talking about sorry it's mary and max uh so okay. it's by the same guy who did the the cartoon movie um harvey crumpet did okay. you ever see that Nah. so it's like claymation yeah um but mary and max is about this little girl who um uh, makes friends with a pen pal and he lives in America um, and he's this old um, Jewish guy with autism or Asperger's and um, it just sort of documents, I think it goes for about an hour, it kind of documents their little relationship, like writing to each other. It's really yeah. sweet but because he's um, because of his autism and Asperger's and stuff, it kind of shows you the insight into his thinking and like the very literal thinking. I, I, the one scene that comes to my mind is... Um, He's at the doctor's and it says take a seat and then it cuts to him being on the subway on the way home and he's got a chair because he's taking the seat. He's taking the seat. Yeah, but it kind of goes a lot through that sort of stuff because that's one of the things at camp is that you could, you would, um, you'd have to be really careful about using um, like slang or things that weren't clear. Like you would say at the end of the day, then they'll be like, but it's not the end of the day. Like some some kids, some some wouldn't need to be that specific, but some would be... um, more severe. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, mm. But, yeah, that one's a good one. Yeah. Um, mm. I mean, I could sit here all day and probably yeah. tell people books to read. Um, 100%. Mm. Mm. Well, we, a few. we could probably um, feel, go through one more question yeah. if you like. Um, so 
the I think it's a good one to end on um, given the circumstances. So one, someone said, what's the biggest challenge that you're facing while working with young people during COVID-19 uh, and what has been a silver lining to all the changes that we've had to make? Mm. Challenges, I think, they're pretty obvious. Like I think mm. everybody would be experiencing similar challenges, like working virtually, working from home, being disconnected from your team, disconnected from your clients, you know, and the way in which we work has completely changed and we're learning as we go. This has never happened before, mm. you know, and some people deal with change better than others um, and some people find it quite uncomfortable. Mm. Um, so I think we're sort of just working as as we we go, really. Um, I would, yeah, and I would probably, I would assume, I don't want to tell people how to suck eggs, but I was, I would assume that everybody's experiencing pretty similar mm similar issues like that it's just new I guess um and it's hard to do the therapeutic work that you do over the phone not have a face to look at um you know it's just a bit tricky but I think for me a silver lining a massive silver lining has been being able to like being at home um and being very disconnected being able to reconnect with team members I think um, something that happens often when you're in the hustle and bustle of everyday work, you know, there could be a whole week or two that go by without seeing a certain member of your team because you're out and about and you just your, your schedules don't line up. Mm. Um, whereas I think being able to consistently see your team and connect with your team and, and watching the way in which um, people have, like, banded together to support each other, I think there's a real camaraderie. Camaraderie? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there and I, yeah, that's really humbling to see because I think sometimes, um, yeah, some you get caught up in in your your work and yeah. you're busy and whatever else. So I think it's nice to dull it back down to that connection. Um, and I think for me personally, um, it's given me a lot of time to reflect, even just you know the isolation stuff. And um, probably for me, I've learned a bit about myself in the I've. Um, I don't mind engaging with people. I would say I'm a social person, but I would say that there's large parts of my personality that are introverted and I need my time alone mm. to rest and reset and um, all of repair, all of the above. Um, but I think for me, I've never really realised how much I need that connection with mm. the people I work with. Um, and it's been a big lesson for me and probably very humbling for me to... Um, find that love again, not that I lost love at all with, with my workplace or my team or anything like that, but it's it's like a little gratitude time, I guess, to be like how fucking lucky am I that I've got, um, one, that I've still got my job in mm. this current climate, but that I've got a workplace and a team and an organisation that I miss being surrounded by. Mm. You know, people always bang on, find a, a job that you love and you'll never work a day in your life and um, find something that you're passionate about and, all of that and I think it's hard to lose your way with that. Like I love my job but pre this I there would have been things that I could have, you know, been really negative about or that I could have been like, oh, yeah, no, but this isn't the best, blah, blah, blah. Um, so being able to take a step back and and be able to be gratitude for, grat, um, sorry, be able to be grateful for what I've got is really nice and it's really humbling to, to be a part of and even my self-care, I think I've definitely ramped that up. Um, in this period of isolation. I've never gone for so many strategic walks in my life. Um, but being appreciating that I can go out and go for those walks and, you know, seeing new 
new things around where I live or observing, you know, people out walking. Like I think that in itself is is awesome. Um, and being able to spend some really specific time, you know, I'm lucky enough to share a house with somebody so I'm not isolated alone um, and I don't have kids so I've got no one running me wild like others. Um, but being able to, yeah, have that time because you can't do anything else, you know. It's a, it's a level of being forced to do the isolation stuff and I think in these times where everyone is a bit stressful and we do need to support each other, it's nice to be grateful for what we do have. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's probably the silver linings for me. Yeah, I mean, I think you're probably speaking for pretty much everyone in this social youth work field. Mm. If you're not having like the client contact like in the justice centre, like in the youth justice centres or residential care and things like that, um, the biggest challenge that we're facing in our team is that client um, contact, client connection, mm. um, rapport building, and especially when we've picked up new clients and things like that. It's been a real challenge. Mm. Um, but one of the things I think that we, like in our team, are, are, um, are being able to to find the silver lining or twisting into the positive is, is supporting young people to be more independent, mm. um, which I think has been really good because obviously they can still access, you know, um, job service or some job service providers or crisis accommodation centres, um, Centrelink, things like that. Yeah. That that would they would otherwise be um, maybe driven to or you'd meet them there and what have you, but um, they have to get there by themselves at the moment, yeah. um, which is, yeah, it's giving, um, I think, staff like that, that opportunity to kind of guide young people from a distance. Yeah. Um, which they're going to have to do, you know, these things independently in the future. Mm. Um, it's empowering. Yeah. Yeah, it is empowering. Yeah. And I think we just don't, and I mean, I, ha- I don't want to get into the big, not with you, but with anyone, like yeah. the big, um, like world-changing coronavirus. You like, tinfoil hatting me over there. No, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm saying like, like, so what I was going to say is we don't really know what impact this is going to have on the world and that Absolutely. sort of thing. But, I'm, I'm, yeah. Um, but I think that, I think what it is going to show us is a lot of the positives yeah. of this, of distance and of being able to be independent or mm. supporting people in different ways. Mm. Even the jokes around, like I saw one and it was super early on in the, like coronavirus stuff was like, well, soon we're going to find out what meetings could have been emails. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. But that's a huge. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, know. it's so true. And that's something that's hard to forget in the work as well. Mm. You know, they are, sometimes they're very capable. We need to give them agency to be capable too. Yeah. Um. But just when you were saying, I thought of something as well. Like I think for me personally, obviously there's been, you know, environmental benefits of the COVID-19. Like I think it was Venice that the the canals have cleared up and that's never happened in years and there's dolphins and all of that. I think that was bullshit. Was it? I think think at least the dolphins part was bullshit. I think so. Just being called out. This is why we should fact check and not read memes off Facebook. I, I think it was fake news. Fuck. I was really excited about that. Anyway, I had hopes that the Great Barrier Reef would regenerate. Anyway, I digress. Personally, for me, I grew up um, in, I guess, a smaller country town where, you know, I knew all of my neighbours. I Mm. could walk next door and hang out with my friend. I could walk down the street and my family friends would know exactly where I was, you know, and it's a real community vibe and I love that. I really love feeling like I'm a part of a community and I'm a Mm. very big believer in it takes a village. Um, so I think for me, you know, I don't live, um, in a small sort of town anymore. I live in a more residential built up area. And I think one of the 
um, really exciting things for me is that, you know, I've had conversations with my neighbours in the past, you know, two weeks that, are, you know, out playing with their kids or whatever. Um, I've had genuine conversations with them and been able to build a relationship and a, and a rapport, mm. um, I guess, with them. And that's something that I didn't realise I missed doing until I did it. Mm. Um, you know, and even the simplicity of like coming home at night and being like, hey guys, how you going? You know, because where I live, we're in close proximity um, to each other. So I think even that to be able to get to know your neighbour, because I think that's a lost art form. Yeah. I think we don't connect, you know, with our neighbours anymore. We don't we don't always connect with community. And, you know, I think for me, an ideal goal would be to go back and live in a small country town to do that because, you know, there's pros and cons, but I love that. That's something that I thrive in, mm. um, community and connection. I, yeah, that's a personal thing for me is I, you know, know my neighbours' kids' names now and I know their ages and I know, you know, what they like and what they don't like. And I just think that's really beautiful. And, and historically, you know, sort of I've just watched them as afar and thought they were a nice, cute young family, mm-hmm. you know, and we... I've, not creepily, but, like, you see them and of you're course. like, oh, they're such a sweet, cute family, blah, 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 you know, and that's it, there was, like, a level of um, separation there before, whereas now there isn't. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think on a personal note, I've really enjoyed mm. that too. There has been, like, a while, at least in my opinion, like, where if you saw, you, like, if you waved at your neighbours or they waved at you, there was almost this, like, like are you, why, why are you talking to me? Yeah, huh? Odd thing. Please don't talk to me. Yeah. Yeah, which is so bizarre. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I definitely think that this, like the coronavirus and that community aspect, and I think, you know, it's um something that I that is I, I just hate the whole narrative, like the whole world narrative stuff. If but, you can't tell, Josh hates COVID-19 uh, and doesn't want to speak about it. <laughs> just like, to be honest. With you, and I think I said this to you like outside of the podcast, but sometimes I just get like angry at it. Yeah. But it's, but I, it's so, it's just selfish stuff because I know that there's way bigger issues going on in the world for people. People have lost their jobs, you know, mm. people that are, have been displaced and things like that. So mm. I, I absolutely put my hand up and know that when I do get frustrated, it's just selfishness. But your first world problems. Absolutely my first world problems. But, um, I can't remember my point, but anyway. But Sorry. No, 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 it's totally cool. But it's, yeah, it's been really nice. Even things like Facebook and stuff where I've had, um, I've been in more contact with people who have lived, like who live overseas or who I haven't yeah. seen for a while and it's so bad, but whatever, you just get that thing of like, you know, well, fuck it. Like I'm going to give like that friend in Canada a call or yeah. what have you, which I think is just really sweet and I think it's really yeah. cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, and being able to be creative with your connection with people I mm. think is awesome and I think also... I can't freaking wait for these restrictions to be off and to go out to a really nice dinner with all of my friends and, you know, just hang out and be around them. And I think that's really nice to be able to, a quote that I love is, I think it's Winnie the Pooh, and it's, how lucky am I to have somebody that makes saying goodbye so hard? Mm. I could have butchered that, but I love that quote. Mm. And it's so right. And I, I, write it in all of the goodbye cards when people leave work and, and whatever else, you know, it's something that really rings true to me, Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> legend. Um, but I think for me it's probably something that I've been able to ponder on that being in isolation is lonely and, you know, sometimes we do take our friends for granted um, and I think we spoke about it with someone, like reach out to that friend you haven't spoken mm. in, to in a while or, you know, call that person and I've made an active effort to do a lot of that 
of late and it's just been awesome and I literally just can't wait to cuddle some of my friends Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not necessarily a personal space (laughs) invader. Like I'm not, you don't have to hug me. I'm cool with it. I like my little bubble. Um, But, yeah, I I think it will teach people a lot of appreciation Mm. post this. Um, Yeah. And I think even for what you were saying, the stuff on social media, it's been really beautiful to watch people support each other Mm. on there. Like I've seen people post in certain Facebook groups around, you know, really struggling or um, just going fucking insane being inside or whatever that might be Um, and people just reaching out being like, you know, I don't know you but DM me, you know, let's talk. Here's my mobile number. Um, Yeah, I think that's been really beautiful to see the the human side of people a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Mm. On that note, are we wrapping up? Sure. Well, before we wrap up, I would really like to know the best question that's sitting on that list. No offence to anybody that submitted questions and we appreciate you. Thank you for doing so. Mm -hmm. But Joshy boy, what is your spirit animal? (laughs) I couldn't even say that with a straight face. Can, do you have one? Yeah. Can you go first? And I want yeah. to think about it. My spirit animal is a whale. Ah. Yep. Um, I'd say killer whale, but in general, no <laughs> no specifics. Like I, all whales um, <laughs> or, or like whatever. I don't even know that many whales. I just love them in general. And the reason is, is that I love water. Mm-hmm. I'm not a good swimmer. I never have been. Um, I had a bit of a um, boating incident when I was young and then, grew a very, very unreasonable fear of water, although I love it. So it's a very, it's like Stockholm syndrome. I want to be in the water swimming, but I'm not good at it because I think I'm going to die. Um, so I, I, I work on that. I'm getting better as I get on. But the idea of whales just floating around with their big bellies on the water is really soothing to me. Um yeah, I just love whales. And if I had to choose a second one, it would be elephants because, like, who doesn't fucking love elephants? They're the only animal that can die of a broken heart. Oh, and I goodness. just think they are just amazing. Mm. So it would be... They're quite large animals now that I think, mm. the elephants and whales. Isn't that funny? I wonder if there's a, you know, me, my spiritual crazy thinkings. So I wonder if there's a reason that I like those. I'll Google it. My gas bagging didn't help you think at all. I've never been asked this question. Yeah. Well, and I really, and I'm trying to think about my personality and trying to line that up with an animal. Right. Um, which is, this is going to make for some amazing podcasting. But I'm really, well, can I, can I what would you say? Is, As you know, your, I was about to say, what do you think my spirit animal would be? Um, your spirit animal. I'm trying to imagine your face on animals' bodies. I don't know. What animal do you feel, like, connected with in your soul? What animals do you love? Cats. They sleep all day and just, like, a little bit. You're too, you're too like, ants in your pants yeah, to be a cat. Yeah. Ants in your pants. What a good saying. <laughs> I've just realised, by the way, we're in matching outfits. We are. We're in, we're on, we're in black on black on black with bands. With bands. It's how we roll. <laughs> Um, you need a spirit animal, Josh. I'm sorry. You can't, you don't have one? What would you say my spirit animal is? I think, I hope you don't take it um, 
offence. Are you about to publicly offend me? No, well, maybe. Um, like a monkey. <laughs> yeah, and I look like a monkey when I do this. So. <laughs> you do look a bit like a monkey. Yeah, I do. Uh, I'll take that. I, I'm not offended. Only because they're quite social and they're always sort of having fun hmm. and like kind of like busy, Yeah. you know, and that's how I see you yeah. at work anyway, hmm. um, just being a busy kind of social person. I'd yeah. be a monkey. Yeah. That'd be fun. Hmm. I think like I think I would maybe say like a type of bird. Yeah. I think yeah. I like exploring and kind of going and bit like sailing through, kind of drifting, seeing what's going on over here, seeing what's going on over there. Bit of an observer. Mm. And, yeah, and I have this weird thing as a kid that if I used to think if I could be anything like that, I'd be a bird because I could, like, fly, like, into the MCG and watch the footy. <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? No, but it's such a, like, how sweet is that? Mm. I think that's awesome. Yeah. So maybe a bird. There a you go. Bird. Yeah, we got there. Yeah, I think you're – I can see you as a bird. Mm. I'd be a kookaburra if I was a bird with my laugh. Yeah, you would. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. Very good. Um, Well, thanks for the chat. Anytime. Um, Again, we apologise. We are trying to be on our best behaviour, I guess, in in the current climate. And we do, as Josh said at the start, we've got a number of guests lined up that we're really fucking excited to get on the podcast and Mm. for you to hear their stories. And we're definitely seeing the posts on the Facebook group about people that you want to you want us to interview and we're, we're trying, I guess, to line that up to the best of our ability. But, you know, we don't know. It's a bit un, bit of uncertain time, so we don't know how long this will go on for. Mm. So bear with us, I guess, and we will bear with with you. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I just want to say we, we, um, we're constantly checking in, trying to keep busy. Uh, I'm always trying to share resources and things like that within the Facebook group. Mm. Um, so if you have anything that you want to share in there, um, whether it's, pretty much anything related to young people, like we're going to find a use for it. Um, Please feel free to jump on, invite people into the group. Um, We, I just want to say thank you to um, anyone who has downloaded and listened to the podcast. We're kind of tracking the numbers and things like that. So if, um, you know, for Nat and I, like we do, we do this, um, you know, like I've said before, we don't make any money off it. It's just for the fun of it and to sort of share information and giving people a platform to share their stories or their information with people. So really, as long as people are listening to it, um, we're going to keep doing it. Um, if there's any feedback, um, good, bad or otherwise, we'd really yeah. like to hear it. You can shoot us a message mm. on the um, uh, pod, the podcast um, page, Knowledge on Tick, so separate from the Facebook group. Um, please feel free. Um, I'd really love to hear some feedback if anyone has any for us. Mm. Um yeah, and uh, if positive or constructive, absolutely, we would love to hear. Absolutely, yeah, um, yeah. And if there's any questions you've got, we're we're happy to slide them into um, to podcasts with guests as well. So today we took a few questions and kind of chatted the shit a little bit. But if there's anything that comes up, um, we can slide them into some um, podcasts with guests. Mm. More than happy. Yeah, even if it's not specific to that guest, we can still 100%. chat about it. It's good to get differing opinions from people from different walks of life and expertise. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Thanks for having us, guys. All right, take care, everybody. Wash your hands and we'll see you soon. Wash your hands. Keep your distance. <laughs> see? Can you tell Nat's been watching the Tiger King? Carol Baskin. Oh, <laughs> uh,
So fresh, so clean. Thanks for listening to another episode of Knowledge on Tick. Please like and share the podcast, invite your friends and colleagues into the group and get in touch if there are any guest speakers you'd like to hear from or any topics you'd like covered. Take care and enjoy your week.